one of the things you do is you stage your own funeral and then you try and envision who's going to be at your funeral and what people are going to say. And it's a way of reflecting upon your life and the trajectory it's on in a way that, and you know, you go lie on the earth and you hold flowers and you pretend you're at your own funeral. And it's a, it's sort of one of the many ways in which they try and put you into specific situations that are designed to reframe how you think or unlock certain emotions. Some of it's very physical. Some of it you express anger in a physical way. And that was kind of next level in terms of a, unlocking things from early childhood and being more experiential. Hello there and welcome to Mental Health at Work, the podcast where people reveal the mental health stories that shaped how they think about work and themselves. This week, I'm filling in for our regular host, Maite, to interview Fred Destin, founder of Stride VC, who shares how a tough time when he hit 40 changed his whole outlook for the better, why being more present is the key to better leadership, and how masculinity can be remolded into a positive force in the workplace. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Oliva, proper mental health support and emotional growth for every single employee. If you want to learn more about how Oliva could support your business and your people, head to oliva.health. That's O-L-I-V-A dot health. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Mental Health at Work podcast. Hey, Simon. Glad to be here. Just for our listeners, could you briefly describe a bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Fred Destin. I'm a venture capitalist. I always say I don't love my industry, but I love my job. And I've been doing this for 20 years and bizarrely still have an absolute passion for it. I'm right now in the offices of the fund I started five years ago called Stride. You can see behind me a little sculpture of the man on the edge, which is symbolic. And I started the fund with the belief that we should ground our relationships with founders and ourselves, actually, and each other on trust and really built around how we can empower founders to build companies and how we could show up not with fear, anxiety, ambition, greed, but very grounded in the reality of these founding teams. Uh, mental health and venture capitalist world. What is the state of the conversation around kind of workplace well-being, mental health, destigmatization within your industry, do you feel? Well, I think the startup industry in general glamorizes grind. There is an interesting tension between the fact that obsession in a way drives performance. And we know this to be true, right? So if you express some internal need, not through addiction, but through addiction to work or addiction to performance or addiction to outcomes, that actually yields exceptional results. As a result of that, we have an industry that tends to elevate, in a way, our own trauma to the level of inherent qualities that are required to do the work that we do. I think the state of the discussion has improved a lot in a sense that people view mental health as important. But there's a lot of after-the-factness in it. 
you know, when people hit the wall, when people burn out, when people are tired and depressed, why don't we provide mental health services instead of kind of systems thinking around how we design companies that avoid people burning out in the first place. Like you say, it feels like maybe there's a bit more awareness these days, but the awareness is quite recent in itself. And so the kind of solution or, or people knowing how to now act upon that awareness to actually make a change in their working life or how they approach their industry, maybe that kind of hasn't uh, arrived yet, that realization. To what extent do you feel like it's possible to like resolve or to kind of manage this central tension between the kind of obsession driving VCs and startups to build companies, balancing this with more of a mentally healthy lifestyle, let's say. There are a number of people who've never built a startup before and probably underestimate the incredible lift that it is um, for founders to embark on that kind of journey. And I think it's important not to be naive about the amount of tension that will land upon you when you start a company. It is undeniable that starting a company from scratch is a tough endeavor. It's climbing a mountain and it's a marathon as well because it takes a long time. So for example, lining up your family or your partner and everybody to understand the kind of journey you're going on and making sure you have the support network around you to allow you to dedicate yourself to this fairly monumental task will continue to remain important. And, you know, I don't think we can sugarcoat how tough that is. Look, founders are exceptional people who will go and take on these crazy missions and actually make them happen. Where I think the few comments on that is one, it's a bit like Amy Winehouse in music. The system will have a tendency to take advantage of you and not necessarily pay attention to you because very quickly you'll be considered to be a money-making machine or some people's ticket to wealth. And I think very often there is not that much consideration for pausing and seeing how the founder is doing and how they need to be supported and surrounded and take their foot off the gas. The other aspect of this is, of course, it's not just all about the founders. It's also the people they hire and the culture they create. And I think there's some pretty good evidence that you don't need to kill yourself at work to be productive. In fact, quite the opposite, right? Like there's a pretty high body of evidence that says you, you don't need to work insane weeks. You need to work out. You need to, you, basically, it's a question of polarity. You can't be on all the time and expect to perform forever. Very few people are able to do that without completely destroying themselves in the process. And I think what we forget is that the body and the mind need balance. There is also an ethical question, which is what kind of world do we want? You know, do we want a world where people are crushed for performance or do we want a world where everybody's a constituent of a project that's sustainable and that thinks about the consequences of how it's being built? That is, at the moment, I would say somewhat confined to like impact investing. You know, people who are investing in climate or investing in the future of food. And it's quite far in reality from the mainstream business life. And it's certainly something that I think we need to wake up to pretty quickly because the reality is we live in a pretty damaged world. And I'm not just talking about the environment. I'm just talking about the, the very visible consequences of burnout and, you know, the democracy being eroded and war and the sort of collective trauma, you know, that you see impacting everybody. When did you personally first become 
aware of your own mental health in a, in a more kind of conscious way? In my case, the thing that really started being problematic was a mixture of boredom and sadness. And the sadness came from quite deep. It felt like a lake of tears that had never been shed, right? And it probably is a 10-year journey before I really understood where that came from. It started to be these kind of little breaks in the matrix where you're realizing that you're not fully authentic, you're not fully yourself. You're playing the role of the provider and, you know, the super active dad and the um, whatever, leading the charm at a venture firm and, you know, being great with founders and being out at events. And there was a, a somewhat addictive logic to that, which is you kind of feed yourself on external validation. I ended up doing something. It's so remarkably stupid. When I look back at it, I'm like scratching my head. So my marriage wasn't going well. I was living in Boston at the time. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to change job, continent. So I moved to Excel Partners, one of the big firms here in Europe. Moved continent, moved the kids from school, moved away from a beautiful house into some kind of overpriced London property. And because I thought that driving change, you know, would give us a, some kind of new lease of life at the time. And of course, it's the stupidest thing you can do to kind of take away any semblance of you know, any semblance of stability you have whilst you're trying to fix your core relationship. That was incredibly stupid. And it's basically looking forward instead of looking inwards. So trying to change your circumstances instead of figuring out why yourself why you yourself are not functioning the right way. You know, my dad died. Whilst Excel is a phenomenal firm, I found that running 500 million funds wasn't necessarily for me because I'm a seed guy. It kind of coalesced into a mix of disasters that kind of all struck at the same time. And, you know, to, to go from the, from the bookend, the story, on the one hand, I was in this beautiful house in Boston with a great garden. The kids could walk to school. It was lovely. And then I found myself eating on top of a cardboard box in front of a TV with no furniture in an apartment in Hampstead in the space of six months and going, wow, what just happened to my life? You kind of sailed through the first few decades of your life pretty much without a hitch. And then suddenly for it to come crashing down, did you ever feel like this kind of stuff just doesn't doesn't happen to me. Like, what's going on? I think what happens in our life for most of us is we have, a lot of us have some form of trauma when we're children. And I mean trauma in the sense of Gabor Mate, you know, something that hurt, your, that hurt you when you were young in childhood, and that can come in the form of absence of love, or it can come as a capital T trauma, which could be violence or war or sexual abuse or whatever it may be. So... And then what we all learn to do is to be functional. And so we're functional. And, you know, we show up, we do things, we build a life. And I think you can choose to lead your life all the way through. And at some point, I didn't have a, thank God, I didn't have some kind of burnout. You know, it's not like my body stopped functioning. I was still functional through that whole period. I didn't in a way hit the wall and kind of have to go look at myself. But if I look at the overall picture, I was like, more intrigued in a way and very curious as to what just happened. And it was more of a, I don't want to live a life unlived, or I don't want to live a life unexamined. The question is whether you are fully present to what is going around you and the quality of your interaction with the present and other people in the world around you. Now, to answer your question directly, 
When divorce happened, I started CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. It's quite fast, or at least my case was quite fast. And then what it helped me to do is to get a intellectual understanding of my patterns, what I inherited from my youth, the personas that I was bringing to the world that weren't my authentic self. And through that process, there were some deeply uncomfortable moments because you have to be willing to really look into your dark side. You have to be willing to consider that you're not the person you thought you were and go sit with that for a moment and kind of hit the bottom of the pool before you can start kicking back up. It was fast. It gave me a good level of understanding. It also wasn't enough. Did it feel weird or unnatural at all to start this process of exploration? And how did you know when you started moving in the right direction that it wasn't enough? Let's say people have defenses that are more or less powerful in terms of allowing them to stop photoshopping reality. Because what we do is we build constructs and these constructs are designed to protect us. Evolution will fool you into reproduction and survival, right? It doesn't, evolution doesn't want you to know the truth. It just wants to keep you alive. So one of the interesting learnings, to give you an example, is being very helpful to other people is not necessarily a quality. It can be a reflection of your own emotional needs and that you go and impose that upon others and limit their own capability for learning as well as having a connection with them that's less real. Now, I think through that process, like I said, I got to a place where I understood myself quite well, but there are two issues that were unsolved. Is One is I really hadn't healed. And so in my case, the next step was the so-called Hoffman process. And the Hoffman is a one-week residential, no phone, in a group where you do very personal work on your early childhood. So it's your mother, your father, your siblings, sometimes your ancestors, your grandparents. It's experiential. So some of it involves the body and expressing things that are inside of you in nonverbal ways. A lot of it is very projective. So you put yourself in situations like, for example, I don't want to reveal too much because it's a beautiful process, the best investment of a week of my life. But, you know, one of the things you do is you stage your own funeral and then you try to envision who's going to be at your funeral and what people are going to say. And it's a way of reflecting upon your life and the trajectory it's on in a way that, and you know, you go lie on the earth and you hold flowers and you pretend you're at your own funeral. And it's, a, it's sort of one of the many ways in which they try and put you into specific situations that are designed to reframe how you think or unlock certain emotions. Some of it's very physical. Some of it you express anger in a physical way. And that was kind of next level in terms of A, unlocking things from early childhood and B, being more experiential. Now you're starting to align the body and the mind and doing, yeah. you know, but working on both. I can imagine that staging your own funeral is not something you're going to forget in a hurry, that's for sure. Is there any moment or realization that you had from that week that you've really carried with you, like a key, a key learning or, or message that you still think about sometimes? The key learning from that week for sure had to do with empathy Part of what you do is you realize how much was landed on you as a child that you didn't necessarily choose and that you didn't own. And my observation from that week is a lot of us carry guilt or shame or have learned to repress our feelings. Let you say, for example, if your father was very angry, 
you will learn to modulate your emotions, number one, so you'll always be even killed to not trigger the anger. And then you will become probably hypervigilant to how people feel. So you'll become a real empath because you're trying to detect when the anger will come out. And so you'll find, for example, that will lead to, a, to an adult personality that's highly attuned to other people's needs, sometimes at the expense of their own, and may not express himself or herself fully. In my case, there was, from a very early age, a hyper-focus on the needs of others constantly, as well as I couldn't really be myself without triggering an emotional response in my immediate environment without going into too much detail. So I learned to put on a mask from a very young age. You realize that your parents or your siblings or the people around you really did the best they could, and you learn to walk a mile in their shoes. And you learn to appreciate that they really showed up in the best way that they knew how to. It's a mix of understanding then moving completely out of blame or out of victimhood again and taking the stance of love towards people who, not in my case, but in the case of some of the participants, were deeply hurt. You know, forgiveness is the key uh, to progress. And so you learn empathy and from empathy, forgiveness and forgiveness, you regain your own freedom. Going through these experiences, like this kind of week-long retreat that you did and the various other work that you've done on yourself, how would you say that that has influenced you, you know, when you're, as you say, back in the boardrooms, speaking to founders, in the zone where you're doing what you do best at work? The real unlock towards in, in recent years has actually been to do a psychedelic therapy because you go into certain states where you can really go and access trauma. For me, at least, it's kind of a surgical tool to go into trauma zones and do some deep work. And I think the result of that in particular has been a much better level of connection to the people around me at quite a deep level. So the way it shows up at work is in a few ways, actually. One is you, you hopefully learn to be truly present, and I mean truly present in the moment, to what is going on in the room in front of you. We all spend our lives either thinking about the past or something we should have done, or thinking about what we're going to do or say next. We impoverish our interactions because we're not fully present to the person in front of us. So just from a pure how we experience the world and the quality of the relationship we have with the present, it's really enhanced by doing the work because you're you, it's like a process, you, you don't change, but what you do is you shed layers of patterns and protection and, and learned behaviors and projection upon other people. And so you achieve, hopefully, a place where A, you can be more present, but B, you kind of step out of judgment or you step out of your own programming to a certain extent. And so I use this word a lot called emergence. You can see what things emerge. Instead of coming in, I used to come in with like, the, I have a meeting, it starts at 10 o'clock, and by 10.55, I want a solution to this problem. And, you know, I'm going to listen to everybody, but I'm going to make sure we get to an outcome by 10.55. Whereas now, I go in with much more of a mindset of just being present to what's coming up 
instead of me trying to shape where we should go or me having a predefined goal. I personally think it's made me a much more efficient exec and leader because I've also created a lot more room for, you know, for situations to emerge naturally instead of being focused on being so efficient all the time, because you're not trying to design outcomes, but you are much more present to how they're emerging, being more present to what people are able to do, being able to what they're willing to take on, letting sometimes conflict erupt around you and to see how people are really interacting, letting them figure out difficult relationships together instead of stepping in and trying to help. I mean, there's a whole variety of ways in which higher presence actually leads to better outcomes. And on top of that, it is way more enjoyable because you're actually generally curious and engaged. And I find the world more wonderful. I'm just like fascinated by how human beings are showing up and what stories they tell themselves. And, you know, it's like, I just find the whole process of learning about yourself and learning about others to be a kind of a joyful thing because it's amazing that we are thinking bipeds that have some form of consciousness and live in a world that we perceive through limited senses and that we have this metacognition ability and that we're able to go through life with a brain and kind of try and make sense of it and abstract ourselves from our natural urges that we uh, received from evolution. And I'm like, that's just fascinating. And then we get together into rooms and we create companies. And that's also absolutely fascinating. And then we wonder what the meaning of our life is collectively. And that's fascinating. So I just find the whole thing that just much more interesting and enjoyable now that I'm more in this mode of presence. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's, it's definitely a theme. The more managers and leaders and founders and whoever that I've spoken to on this podcast you know, I feel like it's an emerging realization that people are having in the workplace that this kind of ability to connect with and really truly understand people, it's not like a skill that managers need. It kind of is the essence of being a manager or a leader, basically. It's gone from being seen as like a soft skill to being seen as the hardest of skills and most important of skills, maybe when it comes to being a leader. What kind of challenges do you think that leaders run into if they haven't done this kind of work on themselves, if they haven't really drilled down into doing the work of really becoming more present and feeling more connected and being, I guess, less of a parental figure within their teams? The question you're asking about the challenges kind of touches a little bit on Let's not call it the masculine and the feminine, but let's call it the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Our entire society and our companies are built around performance, hard KPIs, uh, you know, up or out, uh, you know, hard measures of success. And so in the process, we've lost empathy, intuition, and also a very often connection and community. And all these qualities we can associate with the divine feminine, and they're not very present in the field, right? On top of that, we can also associate it with the masculine and the feminine, say that sometimes the, I mean, the way women show up as, as leaders is not necessarily accepted by the men, or they have to conform to some kind of role model or behavior modeling that is not theirs. And so the objective really is to bring everything into balance so that p- people can show up whole instead of over-indexing on this, you know, 
let's wage war, win the territory, destroy the other and plunder. And, you know, like, like this kind of mindset that we're in and then leverage, especially in the world we live in today. It's like, you know, we have to deeply understand the user. We have to deeply understand our impact on the consumers and users that we serve. We have to look over the long term as to the kind of, you know, whether we are building sustainable innovation, whether we are thinking about unintended consequences. And so I think the whole game is about bringing the divine feminine, the divine masculine into balance. And if you think about Jungian archetypes, you know, we're trying to move a little bit away from the warrior or the magician to the king archetype or the queen archetype. And the king, you know, the king is not some kind of idiotic leader that would be the despot. The king acts on behalf of the kingdom. At some point, it's not about you, but it's about the mission that you embody and the group that you look after. And so when you can get to a place where you probably bring a certain vision and a certain quality of leadership, but the whole game becomes not about you, but about the kingdom. And, and I'm talking in abstract mythical terms here, of course, not, not literal. Now you're stepping into a place of leadership where you will start to raise your performance and the performance of the team to the next level because you just show up with a different energy where things are kind of happening not by you, but through you, you know, and, and there's this, I think it's Jim Detmer who talks about this. Things are happening to me. That's victim mentality. Things are happening by you. It's like you're straining and struggling to achieve outcomes. And then things are happening through you, which is you're fully in your zone. It's a bit like Michael Jordan when he starts throwing three pointers. It's like, where did that energy come from? If you can get in flow with yourself and with your team, then the whole thing starts to hum, right? And actually, your level of effort goes down because it just becomes natural and your team's humming and you're humming and then you get into this kind of flow states as a, as a community or as a team. By the way, one thing I'd like to say as well is this is not about being nice as much as it is about being true. So I think it's very important to remember this notion of fierce compassion. You can be compassionate, but you also want to be fierce which is as a startup founder, you know, if somebody is not in the right place within your company because culture, values, way you operate, the mission you're on is not a fit for them, then this is not about being nice and trying to find ways to make it work that make everybody resentful. This is about being authentic. I know that you've recently kind of embarked on a side project to do with promoting a more positive version of masculinity among your peers, basically, or among whoever wants to get involved. How would you describe harmful masculine stereotypes that you've observed around you? And what kind of problem are you trying to solve with this new project of yours? I have two observations in parallel. If you speak to most men in their late 40s, early 50s, they have somehow exhibited something of toxic masculinity and hurt because of the game of winning, the game of status, and maybe the addictions that they brought along, maybe they drank, maybe they were addicted to work, whatever it is, that they will have hurt themselves, the people they love, in some shape or form. And it may require, you know, a fair bit of honesty around that. But you know, most of the people I know have somehow been involved in that. And so the men carry a certain weight around being the provider, you know, and then with that comes power and power can be, can be misused. 
My observation is there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt in the system and a lot of self-harm and a lot of men who've lost their way. So for me, the best way to help the women in our lives as a collective is actually to change the men, because I'm not going to talk to the women about how to be women. That would be preposterous and be mansplaining. But I do know a little bit what it's like to be a man, you know, father of three, career, ups and downs, you know, all that stuff. So I figured, okay, it would be quite meaningful to start talking to men about how we show up and do we know ourselves and what patterns are specific to us that we bring to the table. We basically started a group with a whole process around exploring our past, our patterns, our relationship with money and success, you know, our relationships period and our purpose so that we can explore collectively how to show better. My observation is there are some really good groups that work at the edge. You know, you're deep in the space of consciousness and psychedelics and, you know, people like they're tattooed and, you know, they're burners and all that stuff. So that community, you know, is working on that with a fair amount of spiritual bypassing, which is a secondary problem, which is when we think we're, <laughs> we think we've been liberated, but actually we haven't done the work. But having said that, there's some really good groups that are working with the slightly edgier side. But I'm like, what about the dude who was an exec at an ad agency in London for 20 years? Or what about the guy who works in finance and he's 55 and, you know, he wants to show up in a different way? So how do we bring these concepts a little bit more to the mainstream? so that they're understandable without fancy language or giant breathwork sessions that involve 100 people in an ashram. You've spoken some truth there when you say that these kinds of retreats, they feel like a big step, I guess, for, for a lot of men, especially men that might not be used to like being that proactive about their mental health, you know, to suggest as the first step to go to like an ashram and, and do ayahuasca. It could, it could seem quite intense for some people. If you want to simplify this down a little bit, these transformation, these experiences are, they transport you to a different state. So for a moment, you will experience a breakthrough certain defensive walls and you'll probably experience some kind of transformed state where you will touch on certain truth. But that's just a state modification. Now you have to work on trait modification, which is how do you actually change your behavior and how you show up and, and your patterns, etc. And so that doesn't happen just by going on some ayahuasca retreat and being reborn or meeting God or touching aliens. It happens through a mixture of fairly precise psychedelic work combined with integration work, which is sense-making, which is linking it back to your early childhood experience, which is connecting back to the trauma view experience. And it's really only through that detailed work that you come to outcomes which are lasting. And so that gradually we can peel the onion and allow these men to show up in the most beautiful way. And then their impact will be on their children, of maybe breaking the chain of trauma on their partners and then on their companies, importantly, because again, how you shop at work and how you shop in your private life are just two sides of the exact same coin. It sounds like you're coming up with something that's really quite unique there. The one question I have, I guess, is kind of getting a man who's in his 50s, maybe, to change his ways when it comes to mental health and how they show up in the world in a different way. It strikes me as something that could be an uphill battle for a lot of men, right, who feel like they've got this far and they're quite set in their ways. In your opinion, what is a good first step for people listening to this to take, especially men listening to this, 
like yourself around your age who, you know, feel like they could do with maybe exploring their mental health a bit more, but feel a bit nervous or they're putting off starting or confused about what to do and maybe feel like, yeah, this whole transformation seems like quite a big thing. What's a simple first step in your opinion? For a lot of men, the fact that they are functional means that starting to look deep into the systems can be terrifying, even more so because you don't know what the consequences are going to be. Because very typically, you're going to start looking at whether your career makes sense to you, whether your relationships make sense to you. And you know it's sort of unavoidable to move relatively quickly into zones that can be uncomfortable. Because if you want to live an examined life, you're going to start to look at everything by definition. My thinking is there's a certain set of modalities that people can use that don't require immediately just blowing up the castle and rebuilding again. And some of these are quite simple and they have to do with the brotherhood between men. So one of the things that I think is a simple thing to do is to start gathering together. And so I'm doing a a walk in Japan on the Nakasendo Trail with a few guys. And, you know, part of what we're trying to do, like this is a physical journey, but in the process, we're going to be talking about some very personal aspects of our lives. And this is why community matters, because we want to bring each other along to the point of realization, courage, not having to do this on our own. People find different ways in meditation. You know, one of the best ways in, by the way, is learning to be alone. I did a solo hike in the Pyrenees for 10 days. It was so phenomenal to watch my evolution after a day of being a little bit scared to go 10 days with a tent in the Pyrenees with thunderstorm to a day of talking to myself nonstop, the voices on my head wouldn't stop for a second, to just suddenly calming down and being entirely present to what was going on and walking unbelievably slowly with no music, no books, and wishing this thing would never end. So I think that what you're trying to do is reconnect with the present. And whatever shape that's going to take, it's really helpful. So breath work, meditation, being a little bit on your own sometimes and doing absolutely nothing. And it could start as simply as pausing at home, putting on a vinyl and doing nothing. A little bit of space in your life to be with yourself, to be with your thoughts and to be in curiosity at your own life. Definitely agree with the learning to just be on your own, which becomes more and more of a radical thing to do the more our society changes, right? Something I've been trying to do personally recently is when I walk somewhere and not listen to a podcast, you know? I've found that I was like, I'm just kind of distracting myself. And even when I feel like I'm disconnecting, I'm actually just feeding more content into my brain even at that time. And I've started trying to be like, hang on a minute. Uh, You know, if I'm listening to like three podcasts a day in my downtime, it's a lot of information that I'm just firing at my brain when I could be using that time to actually process things. Fred, there's just been one thing that's kind of on my mind recently when it comes to the the idea of this men's wellness movement in its various forms, which is surfacing on online and kind of everywhere at the moment, right? Unfortunately, I feel like the kind of the conversation about wellness and masculinity often gets hijacked by quite these kind of like misogynist influences and communities you kind of use wellness tips for alienated young men as a starting point for spreading ideas of blaming 
women for like male feelings of loneliness and alienation and blaming modern society and stuff like this. So, you know, how, how do we make sure like collectively that explorations of masculinity and mental health, especially in groups, stay positive and, and have like a positive outcome in the world and stay with a positive attitude towards women in particular? I think that the dialogue breaks down very quickly when you have virtue signaling what's considered to be unacceptable behavior on the one hand, so let's say social justice-inspired simplifications, and then on the other hand, you have people who don't want to listen to anything because they're in victimhood. I think that the women, they don't want suppressed men who agree with them for the sake of it. What they want are people who show up in their full masculinity and in their balanced masculine and feminine, actually, to be more precise. And so I think what we have to do is to own and embody a discourse that will resonate true with people. So, for example, I think we can all agree that the systems for centuries have led to the diminishing and general suppression of the voice of women without oversimplifying I think we can all agree that these systems have tended to be male-dominated and led to women not being able to express themselves fully. And so we want to be present to that. And more than present, we want to be actively uh, looking to change that. That does not mean lying about what it takes to be a man or diminishing the pressures that society in general have put on both genders. Because I think both men and women suffer under a society that is overly indexing on wealth, expansion, growth, winning, etc. And in, for the men, for example, that means you are stuck in this provider role model. You're stuck in this, you have to be successful and wealthy by your dad or your uncle. The important thing is to be fully present to how society has influenced in a negative way both men and women. And the men have to go respect their own pain, their own pressures, so that they can make some actual progress. What I find difficult sometimes is I will not go on social media and have somewhat of a balanced conversation to say part of the reason why men seek power is because the mating game over a thousand years has been driven by both sexes actually towards making sure that the man is a provider and that role model is extremely prevalent and it's part of the reason why men seek power. And so, you know, just kind of just being present to the realities of Evolution, for example, is not a discussion that you can have openly and in public without very quickly being necessarily associated with some kind of misogynistic uh, asshole groups. We need to win the battle of ideas, I think, at the center, in my mind, so that we can move the mainstream. And then the fringe movements, you know, they'll remain the fringe movements. And we live in a world where nobody listens to anybody anyway. But for me, what's interesting is to empower men to first realize the beauty and the power of the feminine, the divine feminine and the women, and honor it. And then also to realize what their own needs, requirements, and realities are. And I don't make any grandiose claims that I can fix how this thing gets communicated at a societal level, because I think the quality of the discourse is so broken. Fred, I really enjoyed this chat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And yeah, wish you all the best with your continued journey and with the trip to Japan. This sounds this sounds very fun as well. Thank you. I'm, I love that you guys are doing this. I think we need we need to talk about this more and I'm very happy to contribute. 
This episode of Mental Health at Work was hosted by myself, Simon Dumont, produced by Billy Cragen, and brought to you by Oliva. Proper mental health and personal growth support for every single employee. Thanks to Fred for sharing his story and for showing us that founders have more in common with Amy Winehouse than you might expect. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can like or subscribe to Mental Health at Work in all the usual places. And if you really want to help us beat the podcast search engine algorithms, you can also leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, preferably a positive one. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.